This is Create Now, the show that explores creative and generative approaches to changing the systems that rule our world. We are sector agnostic, and our guests come from a myriad of different disciplines and practices, but they all share one thing in common. They are people who are creatively rethinking and remaking sectors once thought unchangeable. On this episode, Create Now team members Chloe Shelford and Anna Saldinger spoke with multidisciplinary artist Chinupa Hanska Luger. Chinupa was born in North Dakota on the Standing Rock Reservation, and his work engages deeply with environmental issues and complex indigenous identities coming up against 21st century challenges. Chinupa is a storyteller, and he uses many media, including ceramics, steel, fiber, sound, and video, along with other less traditional materials that he recycles for his work. During the Standing Rock protest, Chinupa launched the Mirror Shield Project, which invited members of the public to create lightweight mirror shields for water protectors to great success. I'm Robert Rancic, and this is Create Now. I am Chinupa Hanska Luger. Uh, I am an artist, maker, ceramic, steel, textiles, uh, digital media, uh, social engagement, you know, all, whatever the coinage is. Like I, I like to consider myself kind of more so like I'm a social engineer, you know, I'm a bridge builder. I'm trying to build mental bridges for people and communities, you know. So, um, but yeah, I use art. I use art as a, as a conduit for that. I'm from North Dakota, uh, Standing Rock Reservation. I'm an enrolled member of uh, Mandan, Hidatsa, Rikara, so three affiliated tribes. My dad's Lakota. I'm also Austrian, Norwegian, I guess Scandinavian and Germanic. I am a goulash, you know? Um, and, and it's the effect of, of America on a people, a culture, a populace, and, then, and, we, and it goes both ways. The exchange goes both ways. I try not to be victim to all of that and more so be a, um, a force within it. So, that's me. Would you mind talking a little bit about the Native American art market and how you operate within it? Mm-hmm. So the Native American art market was developed in uh, roughly around the 30s um, and a lot of that had to do with uh, Western expansion but really interest first from like the Harvey hotels uh, along the train routes that were heading west. Um, but then it really got a lot more traction um, during the development of like highways and that transition from uh, train transportation to road transportation because that created a choose your own adventure which is like totally a part of the American mythos, you know, of like rugged individualism. Um, simultaneously, you have a population that exists in North America. Um, and there's a whole variety of cultures within that population. That population is the, you know, air quote, uh, Native American. So in the Southwest, where this Native American art industry developed, it first came out of um, non-Native folks seeing some of the pottery from the Puebloan people of the Southwest, uh, the Toa, the Tewa, um, the Kachina making of, of some of the like Hopi, the, the Navajo traditions, all of these different um, really beautiful and diverse and not singular 
uh, visual language, but like permeating from the Southwest, which was a route for like say Route 66, um, they were like, we're gonna build you an economic uh, uh, industry. At this period, people began to collect uh, the, the quote unquote art of the people from that region. And that work, you know, it was, a, it was like pots, rugs, these are all utilitarian uh, 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 items. They were used in, every, in people's everyday lives. Um, but those items, because it was a pot for like say carrying water in the desert, isn't gonna be tiny, you know, it's gonna have function. Um, but they reduced the size of that so that these collectors and tourists coming across could fit them in their curio cabinets, you know, and like representations of their of their travels west, right? Um, it sustained a visual language, which is really beautiful. It also put a, um, you know, it slid a foot in the closing door of America on the, you know, the Indian problem, right? Like this was a way to um, subvert a, a visual language that was being like kind of like forced out of uh, our cultures and our communities. Um, so it was a really awesome kind of like subversive way to maintain all of that sort of stuff. But simultaneously, when you lose a, a vessel for carrying water in the desert, um, that's a huge kind of like effect on your, on your culture. Primarily because it's, if you're familiar with ceramic or ceramic working, like making a, a vessel the size of a coffee cup is a completely different skill set to making a vessel the size of a human torso, you know? Um, it's just a different skill set. So, and also it was like a place where the Western gaze could be like, oh, this is what you're good at. You know, um, like you can't be scientists. You're not going to be doctors. You know what I'm saying? Like, we're not going to go through that with you, but you're crafty. So do that, you know? Um, and it's a perpetuated mentality. I mean, I am an artist today, you know, cause I went to an art school in the, in the Southwest that, you know, is pushing that like idea of what art is, but it's pushing it into a direction of like uh, commodity and acceptability, uh, um, the paradigm created by this Western gaze. Um, and I'm aware of it. This is the native art market. The, the, the inception of it, the first Indian art market in Santa Fe was all non-native collectors of native art and they were basically sh displaying their collections. Um, and then that turned into now a um, all native art market. And, uh, but the collector is the same body, you know? So it's still, it's, it's engaging with that external gaze. It's not making work for each other, or it hasn't been for a long time. Um, and, and I grew up in that, my mother's an artist. So I grew up in that industry and looking at it and it was, it was hurtful and I didn't like it and it was um, it consumed individuals you know it was just like it, because it was art because it uh, because it was commodity because it was commodification of of, um, of culture because that was the, that was the kicker in this whole scenario and I mean it's true all art is a representation of culture but this was like a um, a really, uh, it was tied to a lot of the, the, the gaze of like exotic other, right? Which is also um, tied to like, I guess like sexual perversion or infatuation, romanticism. There's all these different things. It's, it's layered, you know, and it's complex. 
and um, and you work within that industry, and you have families existing within that industry, and uh, and and I'm a child of that, you know. And so I didn't like it for a long time, but then, and I would sit there and I would point the finger from the outside and be like, "What is? What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? I don't agree with you." And uh, but it got to a point that I was like, "It doesn't care what I think from out here. It really doesn't care what I think from out here." So. Um, I think the place to, to actually affect change is like inside of it, you know, um, that, and I'm like, I'm a pretty light skinned native person, which makes me really accept, acceptable to the, to the institution and acad academia within that gaze. Um, I, I look like a white male, you know, that, uh, oftentimes I could be mistaken for one, you know, and that, that it's like, I could use all of that stuff to find my way in, to get a seat at the table, right? Um, to engage with these gatekeepers of like uh, um, access. And uh, I was like, I can't do, I, I could do this for my own benefit. You know what I'm saying? I could do this for my own, like, uh, you know, become the next, we, there's a joke, like Santa famous is like something that, I, that a lot of people say in New Mexico. Um, uh, I was like, I could be Santa famous. It'd be, you know, I could totally go that route. But we could also like manipulate it, you know, and, and, and that was the thing. And I, and it's pure manipulation. Like, um, there's nothing beautiful really about the activity that I do. I'm like hyper aware of it's, um, it's destructive, you know, and it's disruptive and it's dissident. And, um, but I do it with honesty, you know, it's not truth. It's honesty. This was the, the art market. And the thing that I really liked about the native art market is what I, how I began to see it. Because I play into the larger art market as well, I have access to other institutions and stuff. What I was seeing was any, the things that happen in the native art market, because it's smaller, will echo into the larger art market over time. You know, So it's like having a canary in the mind. Like, if it dies, get out. You know? Um, and there are incredible transitions that are happening right now that I, I see are going to happen to the larger art market. Um, and right now it's interesting to me because you have to try to figure out how to exist within these changes, how to adapt. Um, and the major transition right now is the loss of collector, um, which is a, a driver for the economy of, of, of art. These collectors have like sustained, they created the idea of native art. Like we, I mentioned this in our talk, in the talk that I did, but we didn't have a word for art. We just made our lives beautiful, you know? Um, and, and then that was what was commodified. It was like, oh, you have these, these crafting abilities. And it was like, and everybody did. And the reason everybody did wasn't because we are pre, you know, programmed to be crafty, creative people. It was that there was no separation between my life, my prayer, going to get water, cooking food, uh, uh, getting dressed in the morning. There was no separation between any of that and the creative aspect of making your life beautiful. So it was like, you get primed to that. Like if there was a celebration of brushing your teeth, you know what I'm saying? Like, because you do it every day, it's like, you're really good at, you should do that. You know, your whole culture should do that for the, you know, for the rest of your life if it were so this is the same conversation you know um but it just happens to be you know 
maintaining a visual language and, and communicating with a visual language as well. Collectors were dying in the native art market. Their collections were coming out. Um, they just about every institution in North America is full right now of um, dead collectors' collections. Um, so that, like, I mean, just a few years ago, another collector passed away and his collection came out. It, there was no institution that could receive it. And so it came out on the secondary market and it actually undercut a lot of um, native artists who are alive and working today. So there's, there's a really strange dynamic with all of that and the, and the consumption of culture. And, and also in that process of collecting native art, this generation of collectors who are passing away were also perpetuating this idea of native people existing in a historical past. So they created these concepts of uh, traditional work, you know? And so the collections that they were creating value for were customary practices. You know, these were like um, the old style pot, the Navajo rug, like the old silversmithing, you know, style of like jewelry making. I don't know, all of these different things, which are primarily Southwest native techniques and practices, but they were like cultivated, not, not in a deep time idea of tradition. You know what I'm saying? They were really cultivated to adapt to this market, market's desire. And then generations were stuck in that traditional kind of like area. Um, and I don't want to undermine that because all of the work, all of the suffering that it took to like bite your tongue and create this work for an economic driver also kept the door open for my generation, you know what I'm saying? To be able to come in and like say, um, okay, you, we're at this point, like let's push that a, a, another degree. And right now the institution in the market of native art is starting to ask native artists, like, wait, okay, so we know what the collectors decided what native art is, but um, what do you think it is? You know, we don't know. We actually don't know. We've been, we've been believing the, the collector at this point. But now that they're dying and their children aren't interested in these collections and now the market is flooded with this work um, and I have an institution devoted to this, like, what is it? What is Native Art, you know? So it's, it's an exciting time. Could you tell us a little bit about the Mirror Shield project that you did with Standing Rock? Um, a point of engagement I had with, the, with Standing Rock came out of... Um, we were being brutalized and we needed protection. We were, uh, even prior, prior to the shield being deployed. We were using like Rubbermaid bin tops, you know what I'm saying? Uh, winter jackets, anything to protect yourself against uh, percussion grenades and bullets. And the, the number that needed protection was smaller than the number of people who were resisting, you know, to this idea. And I don't even want to call it resistance in all honesty because it wasn't a, the whole camp wasn't created as a, as a protest. The whole camp wasn't created in opposition to the oil uh, industry. It was created to perpetuate our practices, our cultural practices. We wanted to protect that river because that river is our first medicine. It's the first medicine within our cultural worldview. Um, water has always been the first medicine. When we're born, first water is offered you know, um, offered by our mother, you know, to back to the land. And then you come into the world. So it wasn't like, we don't want that oil, you know, it was more so like, we would much prefer water, <laughs> you know, um, and, and moreover, like, you honestly would much prefer water, like, <laughs> believe you me, you know. Um, 
And so that whole point of engagement, like it wasn't, it wasn't resistance. It was, it wasn't, it wasn't anti a thing. It was like, like oftentimes we, you know, there was chanting that was like towards the police and riot care. You're with us, you know, um, we're doing it for you, you know, like, re, you know, trying to, trying to re, remind people that like this dependence on oil is new. Um, our dependence on water is <laughs> primary. It was rough times. It was rough times there. And there was also like an evening in October where there was water hoses busted out in the cold and percussion grenades and bullets and, and all of these sorts of things. So um, simultaneously, there was like uh, a lot of propaganda saying that the camps had weapons and things like that. And there was threat against the camps becoming militarized and, you know, that the people were going to have weapons. And so... Um, I was like, a shield is like an anti-weapon, you know? This is the polar opposite of weapon. Um, but it was seen as such. It was seen as a weapon by the, by the police, you know? They're like, if you're not here to fight, why do you have a shield? And it's like, mm, well, because you're shooting at us is like a pretty good reason, you know? Um, anyway, so this whole mirror shield idea came out of... Um, I was in, influenced by the, the uh, civil rights and, the, and or civil movement. Civil, unrest and rights movements in the Ukraine uh, a couple years ago. And, and, and that point of engagement, um, you know, it happened in urban environments. And these mothers and daughters and grandmothers were pulling mirrors out of their bathrooms and bringing them down to the front lines to reflect. Because in that instance, the police were used as um, uh, a force to crush the, the people. And so these women were bringing mirrors out so that the police could see themselves. Like, we're a bunch of grandmothers, like, look at what we're looking at, you know? And I was like, that's incredibly powerful. Um, but it's also incredibly powerful in an urban environment where there was a third party bearing witness to what was happening. That didn't exist in North Dakota. Um, Standing Rock is uh, where this point of engagement, it's out in the country, you know what I'm saying? There's no third party. This isn't an urban environment. There's no bystander you're either for or against there. You know what I'm saying? There wasn't a third party to bear witness. Um, so there was a lot of like, I said, they said, this duality um, existing there. So a glass mirror would have ended up just hurting the people holding them. So I was like, okay, what can I, let me, let me come up with a cheap, simple engineering solution to this problem, you know? And so it was masonite and uh, mirrored mylar. Um, also, like what I started to use that was even a cheaper material was um, window tint for like homes. It was it was like a mylar and it was mirrored, uh, you know, reflective, and it was cheaper um, as far as like access. And you could get all of this stuff at like Home Depot, you know, which this country you anywhere you go, there's a Home Depot, you know. Um, and so this was I like created a, a a social media share on how to create these. Um, things and that you could make six shields out of one single sheet of of particle board um, of masonite and then some you know mirrored mylar and and some string like really simple design I didn't I made like maybe a hundred of them 150 you know maybe I don't even know I was just producing them once I got to camp but thousands of them came into camp and the the idea of using social media to create like, you could do this, here's an address, you can send it to, and it'll come here. You know, it's an open source practice, you know, where I'm like, okay, here's a simple design, 
Um, also, it was in response to, like, so I, I ran supplies from New Mexico to North Dakota. This mirror shield thing was, a, was something that I didn't have to haul. I wasn't the source of it, you know. Uh, I, I came up with a design, and I shared the design, and the variety of that shared design came into uh, into standing rock and some of them were incredible like I saw some that were produced by an eighth grade class in in Oregon um, and they had written on the back of the shield like the side the the water protector would be holding like these prayers you know and like messages that were like thank you so much for for standing in this space you know what I'm saying um, you know uh, God bless you like all of these different like really beautiful and like I'm like Oh, see, this is why you open source a thing because the the hive mind is way more intelligent than the individual, you know, and um, and the expression is way more beautiful. Like I was thinking, purely utilitarian, and folks went very artistic and very creative in this process, um, building them out of different materials, building them out of stronger materials. You know, there was all sorts of different ways that this stuff came in. And so we drove them in and, um, you know, meanwhile, the propaganda is talking about weapons in the, in the place and this influx. And because it was shared um, on social media, they were hyper aware of all of these shields coming into the camps. And so we started, we did a project where I was like, okay, look, we need to de-weaponize these things. And so I was like, I'm an artist. And like artists are, had this incredible privilege of just being like, um, no, I'm soft, you know, my hands are like daisies, like I'm not a fighter, you know. Um, and so you, you can actually become very effective, uh, you can become an effective tool, you can be, um, you can be a knife, you know what I'm saying? You can cut things and share it, or you can stab things being a knife, you know. Um, it's whoever wields it that's, that decides. Um, and so I was like, okay, let's make these shields an art project. So we did a lot of filming of them in different ways, like people holding them and reflecting. A lot of the imagery that you saw of these shields were the efforts made to de-weaponize them. And like, this is an art project, you know what I'm saying? Like, this is just art stuff, you know? Um, and like, uh, some of the other things that we did there that you don't see much footage of is like, we created a 500 mirror river, handing them out to people in the camp um, to hold above their heads and like walk serpentine throughout the camp and connect all of the different camps together. Um, and hold them straight up because we were being so heavily surveyed. I was like, look, we can use it as a um, as art piece. You know what I'm saying? We're just doing. We're, this is what they're for. You know, this is why they're here. And um, and because we were being surveilled, like this is a performance from us to our oppressor. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm making a performance for you. You know, you're the only one who gets to see this. You know. Um, your cameras, your helicopters and, and planes that are flying overhead. Um, this, is, this is a gift from me to you, you know, from us to you. Um, which was, I think it was super effective. And then, you know, after you do this thing, there's still all these shields, you know what I'm saying? And then now they're in the hands of the people and it's like, do with it as you will, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't care if you want to use it as a reflective surface to like, you know, blind the police, like do that. That's fine. Like, I don't get to decide, you know, um, if you want to use it as a shield, I, was, I saw them used as sleds for sliding down the snow covered hills. The, the application of it is, is bigger than me. And so this creation of these shields is also bigger than me. And I know it did like, you know, career wise that people saw this and they were like, that was brilliant, you know, do, you know, but I feel like this was like, 
it wasn't mine. Like I made a video on how to do this, but um, it's it's capacity. It's it's the depth of it was because we're amazing, not because I'm amazing. The depth of it was application, um, and the variety at which this thing could be used was was beautiful. And I mean, honestly, all of the other things that it did was more powerful and more um, constructive and more shielding than them as shields. Like against a percussion grenade, against the fog of pepper spray, a mylar and masonite shield is a terrible shield, you know? The concept that I was leading towards was reestablishing this idea that we're doing this for you. You're on our side. And so when you hold up a reflective shield, suddenly your oppressor is your front line. You know, they're st they stand with you. They stand in front, you know? And it was also a way, because it was really difficult for us to humanize people in riot gear. Like, it's hard to see the humanity in that. So it was like, I know you're under there. I know you go home. I know you're gonna have a glass of water. I know you had coffee this morning. You know what I'm saying? I know you use water all the time. I know we have this relationship. I can't see you. All I see is your gear, but hopefully you can see you. So the mirror shield was an idea that was like, I'm gonna create a wall, a barrier that separates, or that unites rather than separates. And this is the power of, of, a, of a reflective surface. And this isn't new, like this is not like, Curseus <laughs> killed Medusa with a mirrored shield, you know? Um, there's, th this idea is throughout history, this reflective surface. Um, I just used materials that we have access to now and accessible materials and responded to a question that I kept hearing as I'm running supplies, which is why I brought that up. It was like, I'm just one person, what can I do? You know, and I'm like, well, no, here's how one person can make six shields and how those six shields can stand in front of 20 people in prayer and how those 20 people in prayer can stand in front of thousands of people at camp and how those thousands of people at camp stand in front of 8 million people downstream. Like one person can do something, you know, um, uh, remember that you are, you're incredibly powerful, you know, um, and here's a way. Um, yeah, my brother works for the EPA in Standing Rock and when they were cleaning up the camps and getting rid of like a lot of the shelters and stuff that were frozen and embedded, um, he was like, came across a lot of those shields, brother, a lot of those shields. <laughs> is hosted on the Benton College campus at the Center for the Advancement of Public Action. The Create Now team is Rowan Edwards, Robert Rancic, Anna Saldinger, and Chloe Shelford. Today's show was co-produced and audio engineered by Anna Saldinger and Chloe Shelford. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please be, be sure, sure to, to subscribe. subscribe. <laughs>